Hello and welcome back for the second series of Tea Room Talks, the podcast breaking the stigma. It's great to be back and talking again about the important topics and subjects that will shine a light on the information, support and awareness around, you know, all things mental health. Now, for our first episode back, we're kicking things off by introducing a suicide prevention charity, the Ollie Lee Trust, a fantastic charity doing amazing work from such an awful situation. I speak to Michelle, the founding chair, and we talk about its backstory, creation and future aims. Let's take a listen to the interview that I had. So I'm joined with Michelle Lee, founder of the Ollie Lee Trust. Michelle, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for inviting me on. So the Ollie Lee Trust, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the story behind it and its creation. Okay, so the story behind it's a pretty sad one. Um, it was set up in my son's name, whose name is Ollie. He's a... Um, he was 16 and he took his life, which is obviously very, very sad and heartbreaking. The The knowledge of not knowing what he was going through is the hardest part of it all. He took his life on the 1st of May 2018, which would be five years. And um, he's missed every single moment of the day by not just by me, but by his family, his brother, his grandparents, his cousins, his friends and the community that we live in, because he was very charitable as well. He did a lot of work for charity, lots of different charities, and they've recognised that and planted a forest for him actually in Israel because of some of the work that he did. He left a big gap in everybody's hearts with what he had to offer, and that's probably why we've set up the trust. One of the reasons is because we want Ollie to live on in everyone's memories. We want Ollie to live on in everybody's heart. You know, we were, I'm going to live longer than 16 years that my son actually lived. And I want his name to be around for as long as it can be around, as long as I'm alive and the trustees want to keep the charity going, we're going to keep it going in his name. So what we do at the Ollie Lee Trust, we fundraise and we also deliver free, 100% free training programs in suicide prevention. So it's not, it doesn't have any connotation whatsoever to actually suicide, as in the ways that one can take their life. It's got nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's all about the prevention so that you actually don't get to the end, end point in your life that you want to take your life. So prevention is key for everything. And we give you skills and tools within yourself, how to look after yourself, how to look after each other, how to signpost with each other if they may need some help. And um, we deliver this, like I said, 100% for free. We deliver it to schools, universities, sports academies, industries, any business, anybody who wants it at all, you know, just contact us and that's what we're here for. So that's what we fundraise for. Fundraising is really difficult, like everybody can imagine, but we're just nearly, I think we're £5,000 away from raising £200,000 in four years. So I am super proud of everybody who has contributed in any shape or form, whether it's monetary or whether it's um, a gift they've donated or just their time, because time is just as precious as money. And we have a really good team behind us. There's five of us, trustees, there's myself, 
There's my partner, Stephen. There's my son, Scott, who's a medical student. He's going, hopefully going into his fifth year of medical school. And there's Myrto, who used to be my boss, who's now just a really, really dear friend. And there's Luke, who is someone who did some fundraising for us last year, believes in what we're doing, and um, has come on board to help work with fundraising within the youth and getting the youth more involved. So that, that's basically what we're all made up of. We're all work full-time. We've all got full-time jobs or at school, at uni. And we, we basically work on this at their time. The, the, the dream, if you could call it the dream, is that eventually I will give up my day job and I will work for the charity. But until all our money is for, it goes to fundraising. So you can't take the fundraising money to use as a salary. So until we have a new programme, which we're hoping to bring out next year, which will be salary, need, we'll need someone for, who will be able to actually pay a salary to, to actually do the job, which might as well be me, we, I won't be able to give up my full-time job for this. But it, I, I literally live and breathe it because I believe in it. And I believe, I believe that we all, all need to be happy. We all need to be safe. We all need to be able to speak about our feelings, not hide them, especially boys and men. And we just need to understand that everyone in this world has some kind of issue. We may not talk about it, but everybody's got something going on in the back of their mind that, that no one can see. And it's not a plaster we can stick on. It's not, I haven't got a broken arm and you can give me some sympathy. I've got a piece of my heart that's broken and a piece of my mind that's changed. But you can't put a plaster or give me a special pill to fix any of that. So we all have to be aware that everybody has something going on in their world and that we just got to let the world breathe a bit more and give people some time to look after themselves. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, thank you so much for that introduction there of the work that you do and the services that you offer um, naturally for everyone who requires that service. Um, so, you know, deconstructing that and, and going back to the past trauma that you've you've had to what led to the creation, you know, yourself, your, your personal experience and as a mother, how did you find that inner willpower to just create something from such a bad situation and move on I think you've got to have this makeup before you have a situation so I don't think that you suddenly change and you can get on a horse and charge forward I think you've got to be quite a positive person beforehand just because something's happened that I've always been a positive person I've had some horrific things in my past I've had I battled cancer I was given 20 weeks to live and I had stage four cancer when I had a four-year-old and a five-year-old. And um, I beat that. And unfortunately, my husband left me and my children, not just me, but the children, and not heard or seen of him since. I battled that. I got myself a job, supported my family, and gave them the best world they could possibly have. They may not have had, I don't know, three or four holidays a year, but what I did give them, they thoroughly enjoyed. And I remember Ollie and Scott both saying that probably their best holiday was going down to Bournemouth and camping in the garden. I mean, you know, just being children from yesteryear is the best gift I think I've given my children because 
they just just loved climbing trees and jumping in lakes and that's how very Enie Blyton how I brought my children up because that's how I was brought up and then obviously Ollie so I've always come to a hurdle and never never fallen I'm not saying that I've got over the hurdle and I've done I've made it right but I haven't stopped at the hurdle I've jumped over it and I've kept going I believe Scott and Ollie both had that in them but I think Ollie just actually came to the end of whatever he was thinking because he was so low so low but Scott and I are both we're both fighters and you know we pick ourselves up we brush ourselves down and we get on with it and we move forward and as long as we've learned from what's happened in the past and don't make the same mistakes well I can't make the same mistakes in mine obviously mine was cancer and divorce that you 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 just keep going forward and that's that's just me and my makeup and I've always been a positive person and so when Ollie passed away it was a huge shock huge shock I thought he was upstairs in bed the last words he said to me was mum you forgot to buy the Ribena I mean, that does not give me any idea whatsoever that he's going to sneak out in the middle of the night and take his own life. I left to go to work and Scott was driving, so he drove himself to school. Ollie was off school because he had his GCSEs and he was studying and he was also asked not to come to school. I get a phone call at work from the police telling me that they've found my son's phone And um, I said, well, what's the number? They said, we don't know. I said, okay, well, phone me back and tell me what the number of the phone is. How do I know it's mine? And um, they phoned me back and they told me, and I said, yes, that belongs to, which belongs to Oliver. And they said, okay, fine. Um, And they wanted to come and see me. And I said, why? Why do you need to come see me? And I was at work and they said, no, we'll come and see you. I said, well... They, I said, could you tell me why? And I don't know why they did tell me why, but they said, we have a body and we need to know if it's your son or not. And then I knew it was 100% Ollie. Something, you know, something in you as a parent or a mother or a father, just, you just know something's up. You know, it's, it's Ollie. And um, I didn't say anything at work. I just went back into the office and they could see I was a bit stressed. And they said, I said, I've got to go home. And um, they actually put me in a taxi, sent me home. My friend Marcel was waiting for me here. And crazily, I was running around the house, tidying up before the police came to make sure it was all nice and tidy for when they arrived. I mean, silly things go through your mind. Maybe, Maybe that's quite normal when you're under stress. I don't know. The police turned up with his trainers. They asked me if they belonged to him, and I said yes. They told me that at two o'clock in the morning there was an incident, and um, my son had passed away, which is a bit of a shock, to say the least. So Marcel's crying, and I'm just trying to hold it all together. And uh, all I kept thinking was, how am I going to tell Scott? How am I going to tell my parents? And how am I going to tell my sister and brother? Because as a family, we literally live in each other's pockets. My, my children, were, uh, my sister's children, my brother's children, we're all one together. And um, yeah, that was difficult. So Scott came home from school, the headmaster, the deputy headmaster brought him home. I told him. 
then I had to phone, I phoned my brother-in-law, my poor brother-in-law, he gets all the horrible conversations. He was the one who had to tell everybody. My partner, I phoned him as well. He was in Cardiff, so he got in the car and drove straight to London. It was just awful. It was awful. I didn't cry. I just worried about everybody else and their feelings because I thought if I was under control, then everyone else would be under control. In our religion, we're Jewish. We get buried within 24 hours of passing. So it was a big rush to get all that done within time. And it actually took a little bit longer, but we got it all done within 48 hours. I've never heard of this before, but buses were put on at schools to bring the children to the grounds where Ollie is buried. And there must have been about a thousand people there. And I remember saying to Scott, at one particular time you have to do something. And I said to him, just look straight ahead. Don't look at anybody. Just look straight ahead. You know, it's a it's an hour service within 48 hours of something awful happening. And then we have prayers in the evenings for a whole week. And obviously there was too many people, so we held it in the local synagogue. And that was really moving. I remember one little boy... After prayers, you go. You, we sit on these small, these dark chairs. The, the mourners. You come up to the person after or before, and you say the words, "I wish you long life." One little boy looked at me, and he just didn't know what to say, and he went, "Oh, happy birthday!" And I was like, "You're the sweetest thing ever." You know, you've come, and you've just. These are like 14, 15, 16 year old children who should not have been subjected to what went on in their short lives. And I was just so concerned about the knock-on effects of, of how this was going to, going to sit with them in days to come. It's quite, it's traumatic. It's really, really traumatic. And trauma doesn't come out on the day of an event. It comes out any time afterwards. It could come out in years. It could come out in uh, any time. I mean, my eldest son, he, I think his trauma and the traumatic situation came out when he started university, when he was away from home, when he was surrounded by new people. He's grown up in a community that he's never had to explain anything to, who he is, where his dad is, who his mum is, who his brother is, nothing. Everyone, everyone knows everybody. And suddenly he had to go to university and he was alone and that was quite hard work and that I worry that that's what made me worry about university students if I speak to my son every single day more than once or twice then what about the child who doesn't phone home ever how are they dealing with being away from home for the first time and who have they got to turn to and what what they've been taught how to deal with their feelings because it's not on the curriculum and it should be no I totally agree you know thank you so much for explaining that situation that you were in and I'm so so sorry that it was a situation that unfortunately you were put in and you know I I can't imagine myself I'm I'm not a parent I can't imagine the the thoughts and emotions that would have been plaguing me at the time I mean it's it's hard enough listening to the story and I you know within myself now I feel very conflicted with the emotions I feel um, because of the details of of what happened so 
regarding society, people, schools, what would what would you like to see changed? How do you feel that you know preventing suicide and actioning that prevention? What do you feel needs to change in in areas such as education to protect the younger minds that are, are quite vulnerable with suicide? You don't start off being suicidal. It's a journey. It's a road that you end up at. And that's that's the point on, on training and prevention is that you don't end up on that road. You get to the fork and you choose the fork, which isn't going to stop you. It's just going to take you onto another fork where it gives you options. So I believe um, life's like an onion. You peel off the layer that anybody can deal with or relate with. And I believe that from secondary schools and maybe even year six in primary schools, we should be giving lessons on mental health at least once a week within the curriculum to skills, life skills. You know, life skills are the most important skills we can do because, believe me, I've not learned anything about trigonometry since I left school. I haven't learned some of the things like RE. I haven't picked up an, an RE book since I left school. So that, you know, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's just as important to have on the curriculum now mental health lessons for all ages at all schools. And it should be compulsory because just because you think your child is OK today, you do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know who they're going to meet and how they they themselves may have to deal with something and how that may affect them, even though they were fine to start with. Their friends may be going through something and they may have to hold their hands and that's what can affect their own mental health. So I believe that it really should be on the curriculum. Schools are still hesitant about having people in to give training. They, they're not so forthright about saying, yes, please come in and look after our pupils. I remember when Oliver did pass away, I went into the school and I said to the headmistress, if you don't change your policies, Someone else in a few years' time, who's a few years below Ollie, will be missing. One year later, someone else. There was three children in five years who took their life at Oliver's school. And that's a huge statistic, huge. And she could have changed things. She could have had free training in there. She could have dealt with things differently. She could have looked after her pupils far better I'm not saying this wouldn't have happened but she could have put things in place and that's what we're fighting for that's right and you mentioned previously during your your time and your past trauma that you felt a distinct lack of support around you from the organizations you know there was nothing available like the the charity that you run now there was nothing like that available but there wasn't even any support from the school you know would you care to expand how that felt initially in those very early days or even before you got to you know this situation where ollie took his own life so i was very aware that i was very aware that ollie was troubled something wasn't right with him his his whole sunshine was dimming he was the boy that walked into the room and he didn't have to say a word but everyone knew he was there he just lit up everything he was everyone's best friend he was sporty he was happy 
He's seriously intelligent, a mathematician, always got A's until he moved school. And the last year, he didn't even get a mark. They didn't even tell me about that at his school, that he'd never even produced a piece of work, which I'm horrified about still. So I knew there was some things going on. I kept getting called in for silly, silly things, which I understand within schools, and I'm not belittling schools, that if you have to tell a child more than once, it becomes a pain. It's like you should have got it by now. But there's also a little bit of a 16-year-old boy who wants to be a bit of a rebel too. And he's not the first child who's tried to push a few buttons and he won't be the last. So they really should pick their battles. But they actually targeted Oliver in the end. And he was made he was made to target and he was punished in the most horrific ways. He basically gave up life from the way that he was dealt with. He um, he felt rejection from his father, obviously. He was belittled by a an old football coach who was very, very rude to him, targeted by a group of boys at his previous school who ganged up on him when he was on a school trip. And he just couldn't deal with it because he was always the boy that everybody loved. And he just couldn't believe this was happening to him. Anyway, he moved schools. I didn't want him to move schools. He moved schools. His reputation of being a cheeky chappy went with him. They took it too far there. They closed him into a room with no windows. And he had to sit in that room for the whole day from the minute the bell went in the morning to the minute the bell went in the evening. Told him he couldn't attend one class. So he said, OK, I'll study it when I'm not allowed to attend it. They said, no, you're not allowed to study that. And then when it came to the GCSE, they said to him, before you do the paper, we want to know if you can actually pass it setting him up for a fall. He came third in the year um, off his own back. I never got a phone call to say, you know, really pleased, well done. This was the week before he took his life. He um, he never got to sit his GCSEs because the night before his first one, he took his life. I did take him to see someone. I knew it was the wrong person for him, but there was no one else I could find for him. And it had to be a man because he was not going to talk to a woman. And there's a lack of men out there who, at the time, were psychotherapists or um, anything within that field that could help. CAMS, he was on the CAMS waiting list. And when he got through, they basically said, he's not suicidal enough. Not sure what suicidal enough actually is, but obviously my son wasn't. School didn't help me at all. They wanted to send him to a school that was like a prison. And it was a two hour drive away from home just for him to have a moment to breathe. Well, I'm sorry. I mean, that's ridiculous. He he was told he could sit his GCSEs, but he could only come in for them. He couldn't study at school for them. So they were setting him up for fools the whole way. Every child's an individual. And just because I, I always used to say this about my boys, I've got perfect Peter and horrid Henry. And sometimes it switched. But Scott's per- pretty perfect at school. Never missed a day, was always the A-star student, won the headmaster's prize, was the deputy head boy. You know, he he was just always Mr. Goody Goody, was captain of this and that at school. And even though Ollie was captain of things as well within the sports and what have you, but he was always known, whereas Scott was known for the right things and Ollie was always known for the wrong things. But you couldn't be cross with Ollie for too long because he was just such a charmer. And 
and so apologetic and he never wanted to upset anyone at all. And if he did upset them, he'd be mortified and apologize. But school, his second, the school I sent him to second after, after the school that Scott's at, failed him completely. Failed him, failed the, the person who passed away the year after. They don't address the bullying subjects. Their teachers are bullies. They've got bullies in the school. Every school seems to think they don't have bullies in them. Everyone's got a bully in their school. Everyone's got a hierarchy. That's just life. And I just think that he was let down terribly, terribly let down by society. Yeah, yeah, it certainly sounds like from those situations, you know, the times where you'd have needed them the most to have that parent-teacher role model to to assist you in behaviour, good or bad. You know, we're we're all here to learn, and certainly with younger minds, where their their minds are like a sponge, they're there to to learn and adapt and learn these life skills that we do at school. You know, you'd very much expect within that education sector to have that mutual understanding that if he's you know going through some personal troubles unfortunately education isn't going to be top priority some days it's going to be how he is in his own head and it certainly feels like they battled for so long but not long enough before it just turned into trying to get rid of the problem i.e not addressing it and it's not their problem so if if it wasn't happening in their school or in their classrooms is not something they have to deal with which you know from my point of view I I completely see why the the trust that you've created now offers that support for people who need that because yourself as a mother who would always ensure that you're looking after everyone around you your family your your son when you didn't have that you're almost going to strive for that support that you never had and I think that's almost a testament as as to why you created this and I think it's such a shame that many things like this situation happen in life that make us realize that various things need to be put in place and it is such a shame that it's it's almost fallen on you to realize that loophole that wasn't there when when you needed it because that there are many people that struggle but there isn't a, a sort of you know huge huge number of um, secondary school students who would end up taking their life sometimes they might struggle on into adulthood and and certainly they take those problems with you because they either you know be able to get help and, and get it sorted or unfortunately it ends up staying with them and I think it obviously reflects the education sector quite badly that in your case, you were just completely let down without without support. Going forward into what you do now and trying to get that support, how how did you manage to sort of overcome that feeling of, you know, I suppose disappointment from the education sector in schools? How did you move past that and now look to work with um, within your charity how you work with education and obviously the people that you meet how did you get past that hurdle that felt that you've got to put the past behind you I don't know if I put the past behind me I, I'm pretty cross with them still I think I always will be they took my baby from me but I don't want anyone else's baby to be taken from them it doesn't matter what your child is your child deserves to grow and make their own pathway 
And they robbed me of that. That's how I believe it. I think there's a few people who robbed, robbed Ollie and me and his family of his pathway. So um, my actually, I've got a little nephew who was one, nearly one when Ollie passed away. And I, I just looked at him and I just thought he is so precious and gorgeous. And I wouldn't want anyone to upset him. And I just realised, and I've got younger nieces as well, and I just thought, We've got to put something into schools to protect our children because it isn't there now. It really isn't. And and like I said, at university, and if you miss them at school, you miss them at uni, and then they go into work, then, you, you know, the workplace is even harder than school or university because that's your livelihood. And if you don't know how to deal with that, you can spiral in so many different ways. So... Stephen asked me to set up the trust quite early on after Ollie passed. And I said, well, can I just have a bit of a breather here? And after a year, I said to him, OK, I'm ready. And one of the reasons, maybe it's selfish, I don't know. But one of the reasons I said I was ready was because I knew Scott was going off to university. And um, Stephen's in Cardiff and I'm in London. And um, I was going to be living on my own. And I needed something to do to keep me occupied and a purpose and a mission. My whole weekends were always taken up by the boys and their football and their sports, which I attended everything. And suddenly I was going to go from a house full of friends and boys to absolutely nobody. And I just thought, I need something as well. I need something as well to get to start moving, to do something for me and do it in a good way. So we set up the trust. Um, and we basically just asked for people to become patrons and, and asked them to donate some money to start it off, basically. We then found three charities that we felt would benefit from a, a, a grant from us. And then we had a launch party at the end of February. And two weeks later, the whole country and the whole world shut down. So it was... What do we do? We've, we've just set up this charity. We've started to generate some money. It's it's more valuable than ever because children are now at home without their friends and without, you know, that they, they may not, the parents may be arguing. You just don't know what's going on inside someone's home. They need us more than ever for their mental health. So we did quite a lot of Zoom charity events, kept the name going. And, um, you know, we made it work. And a lot of people did some fundraising as well, making bracelets and doing some other bits and pieces and um, kept ourselves going. And we only had a second event last February. And in between all that, we were just doing, people were independently fundraising for us, what have you. And then last year, we had a really, really good year because that's basically when the world started opening up properly. So we had, we've had, Actually, we've had two football tournaments. We've got a third one coming up on the 2nd of July. Stephen ran a marathon, London Landmark Marathon. And we just find things the whole time. So someone's climbed Kilimanjaro. Someone's done three peaks. Um, we're hoping to do uh, three peaks in October this year. We'll be putting that out on our website. We just coming up with ideas the whole time we've got merchandise and all the money that we raise basically gets plowed back into the grants or our training program so 
to give you an example, for every five hundred pounds between between three fifty and five hundred, we can deliver to a whole school for a day. And that's a lot of children. Yeah, that's a lot so, of education it, there. It is, and also uh, we can do it by Zoom. So we can do it to multiples and multiples of people as an audience who are beginning their training. So breaking it down at the moment, I think that some of our training programs has cost three pounds a person, which is nothing, which is fantastic for all the training that we've, we've had delivered so far. You know, we're doing really, really well. Like I said, we're 5,000 pounds off, 200,000 pounds raised in four years. We've got um, hashtag flowers for Ollie coming up, which is, um, actually I've got it here. It's a, um, a seeded card. And if you plant it in the ground, you'll get some wildflowers come out um, and look pretty. It's um, a card for, to mark the anniversary of his fifth year of passing on the 1st of May. There are no websites to purchase. We're just coming up with ideas the whole time. I have a most amazing committee of girlfriends who just turn up when I need them. Just just support us regardless. Just not, no big, nothing's too big or too small. We've got a great company does all their printing. We just we're just supported by lots and lots of people. We're, you know we're, we're very fortunate. We have a very good community who support us. But obviously we're always looking for more people. We're looking for more corporate sponsors would be really good. Patrons, just people who will have us in and tell tell let us come in and train your staff. I mean. If you, you know, EY, did a talk at EY. It doesn't matter who you are, your staff need you. It's your responsibility now for as, as a company to look after your staff as if they're your family. Because if they don't perform, then your company is not going to perform. It's not just, I'm having a bad day in the office. You just do not know what's going on before they got to the office. And you need to look after your staff more. And I believe employers are actually looking after their staff more because everybody deserves training no that's right and i think that's absolutely fantastic with all the the various projects you've got lined up um to finally wrap this episode up i'd love to know and certainly to tell the listeners where they can look to get in touch and offer their support with your your socials or or websites if you care to to share those details with us so our website is um, www.theollieleetrust.org. Instagram is The Ollie Lee Trust. My LinkedIn is under my name, Michelle Lee. Facebook's the same. It's under The Ollie Lee Trust. Just remember Lee is L-E-I-G-H and Ollie is an O-L-I. He wouldn't be happy any other way. Yeah, you can just look us up. You can contact me, info at theollieleetrust.org or michelle at theollieleetrust.org. We, we're everywhere. Wherever you want to find us, we'll find you can just go to type us in and you'll find us. You can read our story. You can read all about the people who support us or the things that we do or all the events that we put on. I always say that well, I'll only put on an event that I myself would want to attend. So, and I like to have fun. So that's <laughs> that, what we do. That's it. That is exactly it. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your story and the details of the Ollie Lee Trust. And it's going to be great for the listeners to appreciate this and show show them that, you know, from situations of 
you know, great upset has almost led to this inspirational and area of hope for for people who require that service. So thank you once again for featuring with me today and, and explaining your story. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Such an important organisation raising great awareness there for suicide and how, unfortunately, easy it can happen. It was a tough listen to hear about the emotions and the build-up to the situation and even as a listener it churns up feelings of sadness, guilt and almost anger. Michelle really has converted this into something worthwhile to help others and I think that really needs commending. I hope you've enjoyed tuning in for the first episode. As always the links are available within the episode description. Of course it's going to involve the Ollie Lee Trust and I really recommend you check them out for events, merchandise and follow their social media. It's really great to support these organisations and within the links there's also NHS advice on suicide. Thank you again for listening, keep an eye on our socials and as always I'll see you next week.